thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. So we've been talking for several weeks now about what it means to be a servant. That's what we're focusing on here in 2020 at the church. What it means that we are servants as Jesus is a servant. What does that mean for us to become the greatest servant? Who is the greatest? We always ask this question. We've talked about this over the weeks and in sports or in life or in business, uh, you, you can see it anywhere you turn, in a newspaper, in a magazine, and on TV, on the internet. There are always comparisons. It doesn't matter if you go to, to the news channel or you go to, talk to uh, you know, daytime talk on TV or YouTube or wherever. There's always people that do comparisons. Is this great or is that great? Is this product great? Is this person great? It doesn't matter. We're always asking this question. Right now, there are politicians we talked about who want you to think that they are the greatest. Funny how quickly that seems to change, too, from week to week, isn't it? Which one's at the top, which one's not? It's amazing. But there's one thing. No matter how advanced we believe ourselves to have become as the human race, we find so much of ourselves in the antiquity, in the people, in God's Word, in the Bible, thousands of years ago. These people are just like us. They struggle with the same things as we're going to see today in God's Word. Now Jesus, he calls us to be his servants as a collection of believers, to be more like him, to become more like him. So what would make us great in his eyes, in his kingdom, in his estimation, that should be the most important thing for us in our lives. And as we enter into Lent this week, we'll be reminded of just what it means to be more like Jesus. And to remember all that Jesus gave up to become one of us and to come and to lay down his life for us. Life in this sinful world is a messy proposition. If we're honest, we will admit that being more like Jesus, being more of a servant like Jesus was a servant it can seem almost impossible to us sometimes, can't it? I don't know about you, but there are times when I just, I struggle with this. I struggle with this in my life. Sometimes, if we're really honest, uh, we should be fine with uh, knowing what it means or just seeking to be most okayest servant of Jesus. Like, just really, just what's, like, D is for diploma. D is for disciple. Now, I'm not saying we should strive for that, but if you're like me, there are days when in your faith, if you stop and you reflect, maybe you do your devotions. I wake up pretty early in the morning. I don't really wake up. I just kind of lurk. I don't really sleep. I sleep a couple hours and I wake up. My dog's like 190 years old, so he wants to go out at like 4 a.m. So I'm like, all right, we're up. We're good. So I, I read my devotions. I, I do it. I actually, on my phone, I, I use uh, Desiring God with Dr. John Piper. It's great. You know, there's all kinds of good apps out there if you don't know what to do devotionally. Just type in devotion app into Google and you'll find it, okay? There's, li there's lots of good ones, but there's a lot of Ligonier Ministries. Uh, our friend Alistair Begg at Parkside Church, he has his Truth for Life, which is great, his teaching ministry, Desiring God, Dr. John Piper. Find one of those, use one of them every day. But when I read those devotions every day, when I go through them, sometimes as I read them, I'm so convicted in my own life that I'm just thinking, man, I would be okay with a participation trophy right now. Like, you just, you know, thanks for coming. You're, 
you're in. Do you ever feel like that in your faith? Maybe I'm the only one that feels like that. Sometimes I read my devotion, I'm just sitting there thinking, ugh. Sometimes I'm kind of audibly doing it. Even my dog's kind of looking at me like, you're right. I mean, we just woke up. You should not be this frustrated already. We've been up for 14 minutes. Like, what's going on? But it's really one of these true things. As we enter into Lent, as we, as we consider this going into Lent, we're going to ask this question today. What does it mean for us to be more of a servant of Jesus, to be one of the greatest servants? If we want to become the greatest servant of Jesus, what's that look like? And we're going to see today the disciples they were seeking to do that, but they really were struggling to understand what that looked like. So we're going to look today at Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is an important passage of Scripture. This chapter talks a lot about interactions and relationships in the kingdom of God. Matthew 18 is a lot for us in terms of how we handle difficulties and frustrations between one another in the church, what it means to be right before God, to be seeking to, to live in good relationships with each other, and with God. So we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to ask this question. We're going to really look at this. What does it mean? What does greatness look like in God's eyes? What does greatness look like in God's eyes and in his kingdom? What does greatness look like from God's perspective? That's the first thing we're going to look at. And the second thing, that state of being, that state of being a great servant in the kingdom of God. When we're doing that, what does it look like for us to see that happening in our lives? We've been talking about these traits of being a servant here in these opening weeks of the year. And we're going to really look today as the disciples come to Jesus, they say, hey, we want to be, be the greatest servant. And Jesus answers them in short order. And as we're going to see, we don't, they don't know what to do. So Matthew 18, where there's a few verses in your bulletin, we're actually going to look at verses 1 through 5 of Matthew Chapter 18, that's on page 872 in the Bibles in your seatbacks if you want to follow along or in your own Bible, we encourage you to do that. And it'll also be up here on the screen. What does greatness look like in God's eyes and in his kingdom? And what does it look like for us as we seek to manifest that, to have that happen in our own lives? We're going to answer this question. So remember, we're asking one question and one question only here to start out. In terms of God's perspective and God's kingdom, who is the greatest of all time? Let's read here in God's word this morning. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child and had him stand amongst them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one like this in my name welcomes me. God's word this morning, we're going to answer this question. What's it mean to be great in God's kingdom? This is as real for us today, as relevant as anything can get in our lives, and in our world. In Matthew 18, this picture is painted, and it's a picture of the disciples that is not particularly flattering of them. I don't know if they could even get a participation trophy or the okayest servant of Jesus award in this moment, because they really don't understand. This passage does not portray their, 
their understanding, their motives as good or pure or even remotely helpful for what Jesus has as the goals of his ministry that he's been laying out for them. You see, if you look in God's word just before this, Peter has recently proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, the expected one, the redeemer of Israel, who would come and right all the wrongs, fulfill all the promises in God's word in the Old Testament, the one who would save Israel and guide them, that God's promises for them would, would come to pass. So they were looking for that. After that, they were even more recently than this passage on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were up on that mountain and they didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't understand what God was about there, but they were so excited because he's there in power and glory and majesty. Moses and Elijah up here and they're like, let's just stay here. This is perfect. And a voice from heaven tells them, no, listen to him. You guys don't get it. They're struggling. They're struggling to understand what Jesus is doing. But now, after that, they think, well, this is, this is on the next level. Jesus is, he has this power. He has this glory. He's going to do it. Look, there's Moses. There's Elijah. We need bumper stickers and shirts and a web store and all kinds of things. We are going to make it big time. Healing people is one thing. Teaching in the temple and getting the crowds, that's something. But now this is unbelievable. He's truly going to do it. He's the grace of all time. We need to get a daytime TV schedule lined up for him and a press secretary. And so they start thinking about this idea. You know, he really is the greatest. There's Moses, there's Elijah. He really is going to do it. So if he's the greatest, he really is everything he said he is, he's the Messiah, which one of us, which one of us comes next? Which one of us, aside from him, will be the greatest? It happens so honestly, so quickly, with any of us. We're always comparing, even if we don't realize it. Have you caught yourself doing this? Looking at someone at work or at lines, in the line somewhere with you or at the supermarket, and whether it's something on the internet, a trip somebody just took, or maybe they got a hot tub, or I don't know, uh, maybe they got a new car, a promotion, whatever it is, some work done on their house, and you think to yourself, or maybe you've even said to yourself something like this. Maybe it's not you. We'll take you out of it. Maybe it's somebody else asking for a friend, a relative, something. Or they've called you on the phone. They said, hmm, have you seen what's going on where blank got slash did blank? You ever had one of those? Hmm. Well. That's really nice. Good for them. Now, do you really mean that when you say good for them? No, if you're really honest, what you're thinking is, why did they get that and I get this? Why am I driving a Yugo when they're driving a Cadillac? Now, if any of you are still driving a Yugo, let me know. We will pray for you. Um, 
we'll lay hands on the car after the service. If it's still running, that's quite a feat after all these years. But I mean, no, I mean, honestly, have you ever, I mean, just really think to yourself, don't raise your hand, that's okay, but have you ever done this? I've done this. I've definitely done this. Maybe you do that. Maybe you don't. But for each of us, it's not that you want Jim from work to die. Not because he got a hot tub or a new car. But if he stubbed his toe and you knew it hurt, in some strange way you might feel better about your life. Now if you stop, I mean really though, if you stop and think about it, is that a healthy, good, godly thing? We're always comparing. We're always doing it. We're always seeking to make sure of our position in terms of the world around us. Maybe it's generically, maybe it's individually, maybe it's somebody that's with us and our lives and our families, our kids, our grandkids, even if your kids are grown or you have grandkids, we still do this. <clears throat> You'll see what's going on with somebody else's family. You'll see that. And you'll think to yourself, hmm, that's interesting. Here in this passage, we see the heart of this, the depth of this. And we get some clues from the text, contextual clues as to what's going on. The disciples here, they're so real, they're so human, they're so like us in this passage. At the time, it says in the passage here, at that time. So at a specific time, all the disciples get together and come to Jesus in a group. Now, if you're Jesus and you see them, now first of all, you're Jesus, so you can do some things other people can't anyhow. But you don't even have to be the Messiah to get this. You see all 12 of them kind of shuffling up together, looking at each other. And after all the time he spent with them, he's probably thinking to himself, oh my gosh, now what? Father, what is going on here? They come up to him, and they get together, and they want to make sure they ask this question when they're all there, eyeballing each other. They want to see the reaction. And they come up to him, and they ask him, now Jesus, it can't be all of us, but we have a really important question for you, Jesus. This is a group of dudes, keep that in mind, ladies. Girls would find a much more advanced and strategic way to do this. Boys, not so sophisticated. And in true dude fashion, true guy fashion, they say, Jesus, which one of us is your wingman? And they're all just kind of sitting there. And that's what they're doing, though. If you're a Star Trek fan, okay, you're Captain Picard. Which one of us is your number one, your Riker? If you're not a Star Trek fan, this will work. If you're Maverick Jesus, which one of us is Goose? I know we're going to die, but that's okay. Let us know. If you're not a Top Gun fan, movie's coming out this summer. You probably should watch it before it comes out. Okay. You'll cry. If you didn't cry when Goose died in Top Gun, you don't have a soul if you're a man, okay? I'm sorry. He's the most likable character in any movie. If you haven't seen it, I just ruined the movie for you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. If, if you know me well, this is like one of my all-time favorite movies. This is the movie when I buy a home theater that I tune my home theater to the opening to this movie. Because Kenny Loggins is what plays in heaven, and that's what you hear. 
Anyhow, moving on. Uh, I don't know what just happened there. I apologize. It's a strange moment for all of us. Okay, but they have this question. This is honest, though. I mean, this is real. This is what they're doing. They're saying to Jesus, I'm your buddy, right? I'm, I mean, you love all of us. I know John's like your buddy, but he's not as useful as me. Can you imagine this? They're, re they're rehearsing elevator speeches for Jesus here. They have, they've thought this through. You know, can you imagine Peter coming up to him? You know, Jesus, I know, I know that I almost drowned in the storm thing, but, you know, at least I jumped in the water. Andrew was grabbing onto the mast of that boat and crying like a small child. <laughs> at least I jumped in the water. You know, when you calm the storm, I wasn't like thinking another storm was coming. I went right after you. I mean, for real, don't you think they imagine this stuff? I mean, you know, it's not like I'm some little kid like Andrew holding onto the mast. I mean, what good would that do? Little kids aren't worth a thing. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he grabs a small child. If we look at Mark and some of the parallel accounts, we see that he picks up the child and carries the child into the midst of all of them. And he has this little boy and he says, hey, see here? You see this? This is what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. This little child. And they all must have looked at each other and scratched their heads. You see, in that world, children, though loved and important, were not valued the way in the Western world we value our children or at least in the Western world, the way we used to value our children. I do worry about that in our culture. The way that children aren't valued as life, or as beautiful, or as unique until we decide they are. So some of you know where I'm getting that from. But in that culture, a child, they were not seen as as valuable, they, they couldn't herd the animals, they couldn't do all the work, they couldn't make all the money until they were contributing to the home. And often the families would live in groups together and until they were part of that and making a difference and providing. And there are still many places in the world where this is more true today, particularly still in the Middle East. The children gain stature and they have a moment where they're producing and being a part of that. And that's the world that these disciples knew and for Jesus to say that this small, helpless child that can't take care of itself, can't make it through the night on its own, would die of exposure, doesn't even know what to do, to say that being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like this child, they don't know what to do with this. And it tells us that the disciples, for all they've seen and all they've known, often how we feel, we're clueless like they are often about the kingdom of heaven, about what Jesus says. And he says to them, look, he says, truly, truly, that's in the Bible when he says, hey, come here, truly, I tell you, hey, pay attention to this, guys. This child, unless you turn and become like this child, meaning they're not there, they don't get it right now, they've got to turn back the way they're going, what they're thinking, what they're Running after, he says, turn around, come back the other way. you got to be like this child. 
Not only will you not be the greatest in the kingdom, you won't even enter it. You're not going to get it. It's not going to happen for you. This must have seemed like absolute nonsense. The disciples, they assume that Jesus has come to build a, a world like the world that they know. A kingdom, it's got hierarchies, it's got levels, it's got structure to it. It's got structure. There's these people down here at the bottom, and there's some of these people in the middle, and up here at the top, you got a court, and you got all these people that are a part of that, and there's a hierarchy for it. It's, it's important. It has to look like something. It's got to look like this, and for you to say it's this child, we're not even going to be in the kingdom. What does greatness look like in the kingdom of heaven? It looks like this small, helpless child. And let's be honest, in our world today, is that how we define greatness? No. What does it mean? You see, in that culture, rabbis, when they made it big, their followers, their close inner circle, those people got honor. They got prominence, like Jesus gets on the Pharisees and says, you want the places of honor. You think you deserve them. Well, the disciples here are thinking, you know what? That sounds pretty good. I want to be on the A-list. I want to compare myself to these other people, and I want to be ahead. Jesus? But Jesus here doesn't tell the disciples what they want to hear. He doesn't place them even in the middle management. He doesn't even put them in the bottom rung. He says that they're not even on the board right now. Jesus here takes everything we know, everything we know about greatness, about what we seek, what we fight for. You see, for us, greatness is something we earn. We work harder in life, in music or art, in skills, in sports, in our jobs. We work hard. We like to be recognized for it. We like to be compensated for it. I'm not saying that it's bad to work hard. In fact, there are so many places in Scripture we're told to study hard. Sorry, students, you're supposed to study hard. To work hard. It's not to say that performance is bad, but does performance guarantee greatness in God's eyes? Is working harder and trying to get it all together guarantee greatness in God's estimation? And here... Jesus clearly says, no. In fact, what he usually gets is an overinflated ego where you start to think about yourself in terms that God says is not maybe the best. Jesus turns it all upside down and inside out. It's fundamentally different than what we tend to make it in our hearts and in our lives. This is consistent with what Jesus teaches us and even what we see later in his passion. What he says later as he approaches that is he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He tells him that just a short time after this. It's what God's word is consistently taught if we would just see it. Let's think about that. One who is like a child is the greatest. One who is humble. One who places himself beneath other people. Who recognizes their own helplessness is the one that's the greatest Jesus is the greatest servant, and the one after him is like this child. Jesus flips over the entire concept, the actual idea of what it 
means to make someone great in God's eyes. Ask yourself today, what do you think makes someone great in God's eyes? What do you think makes you great or even good in God's eyes? What do you think makes someone worthy of being a part of God's kingdom? It's because you go to church all the time? Because you don't do the big sins? Maybe just the little ones? Maybe you do the big ones, but you try really hard not to? For most of us, if we're honest, we think that those who work hard and give the most to God's kingdom are the greatest in God's kingdom. But here, Jesus tells us that we need to redefine how we value things. In fact, what he says here is his kingdom redefines human value. Now, why does that matter? Does that mean that working hard in God's kingdom is a bad thing? Not at all. But does that mean that God loves you more than somebody else? No. Because no matter how hard we work, no matter how well we perform, no matter how suitable we think we are, no matter how, how worthwhile we think we give to God's kingdom, we're still broken sinners and we can't get together. We can't even step foot in God's kingdom because we're broken sinners and God is holy. And Jesus is saying, no matter what you've seen, no matter what I've taught, you still don't understand. You and your sin are like helpless children. Unless I pick you up and take you with me into the kingdom, you're not even in it. Now, what does that mean for you in terms of how you treat other people? The problem is, in our performance-based view of everything, we value people based on their output. That's that sin, that insecurity. We're trying to prove ourselves. We know we don't have it together. We want to prove it. And Jesus says, stop trying to prove it. You're like a little child. And that's okay. So start with recognizing that you're not going to get it together. And come to me with that. The problem is, if we think we can get it together, then we think everybody else needs to be getting it together too. And we change how we not just look at ourselves in terms of God's kingdom, how we value ourselves in comparison to other people like we talked about earlier, but we change how we think they ought to be in comparison to us. So when we go into a room and we see people in our lives, in our jobs, in our relationships, even in our spiritual life, we look at them as to whether they contribute anything to help us achieve greatness. Now you may think, I don't do this. I don't do this. But the reality is because of that way that sin tilts our perspective, we all do this. When we see people, if we don't think they're going to contribute anything to help us get to our goals, we tend to filter them out and treat them differently. This is human sinful nature. I could go into a lot more of this, but we're not going to this morning. But in that effort to be righteous ourselves, we forget this. And Jesus says, no, you got to be like a small child who can't even protect themselves and understand you can't do this. You want to know how I can tell you to do this? Think about how people treat people on the phone. 
particularly if they're having a problem with a product or a service. How do people treat customer service people on the phone? Because you don't see them, so they're less human in that moment, right? But really, in your mind, you know you're talking to a human being. Now, granted, you may have talked to 15 robot voices to get to a human, and that doesn't help. But by the time you get to a human, have you ever treated them like they're stupid? They're not. I would bet that there are very few, if any of us in this room, that could answer that, that no, I've never done that. How many of you, when you've not been served promptly at a restaurant, have been a jerk to somebody? If you don't think that happens, come sit with me at the Texas Roadhouse and wait for people when they don't get their table called exactly when they thought they were supposed to. If you've ever been a server, you know what that's like. How many of us, because we're frustrated and afraid, have ever been mean to a nurse? For ourselves or for a loved one? In that moment, they're not helping us achieve what we've decided needs to happen. So we filter them out and we treat them differently. That's just what we can be aware of. There are times I think we do this in our lives when we look at people and we don't even know that we filtered them out and we think that they're not somebody that's as important to God's kingdom. They're not someone that's as worthy of God's love. They're not made as much in God's image. Just how the disciples must have looked at that child when Jesus picked him up. It's what we do. Because sin creates this deep insecurity. This never enough. This Jesus, I'm the greatest, especially if you knew what so-and-so was really up to. This is a deep teaching for us. We cannot survive, spiritually speaking, out in the cold of night without God's grace wrapping us up, taking us in, and keeping us warm. How does this change us? That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom. That was our first question. Our second question, when this manifests, when this happens in our lives, when we redefine this the right way, when we get it right, this upside down, this kingdom that Jesus creates, how does that work? When we're part of that kingdom, when we live into that kingdom, what does that look like? Briefly. Jesus is the greatest servant. And you look at passages like you see here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to talk about that as we enter into to Lent, all that Jesus gave up. What's it look like? It's interesting. Redefining this kingdom, Jesus places himself at the bottom. He's at the bottom of the structure, the bottom of the organization. He's the greatest servant of all, and he's lifting everything up through that. And look here, there's Jesus here at the bottom, and then we see our church and our leaders, we see our faith community, and we see the greater world around us. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. The upside-down, inverted pyramid of servant leadership that Jesus creates for each one of us 
It's a hard adjustment each one of us needs to make today. Recognizing Jesus is the greatest servant, so we got to be down beneath him. If we want to be Jesus' wingmen or wingwomen, that's allowed too. What's that look like? He's at the bottom. It looks like this. Frank Blake took over as CEO of Home Depot a number of years ago when Home Depot was struggling. All kinds of things were messed up. People didn't think he was really going to figure it out. Yes, he'd worked with Jack Welsh and other great CEOs. He was a pretty powerful guy. But people said, well, he'll be a stopgap, an interim guy, and then we'll figure out. We'll get somebody that everybody really wants. We'll see what happens. What they didn't realize was Frank was a Christian. And he had been watching some things about leadership and about ministry and life. And he was thinking about that. And he decided that he was going to flip all of that upside down at the guy at the top of the pyramid. So every week at Home Depot, he started writing notes to employees there. He started talking to the managers and planning lunches where he went out and ate lunches with them. He started writing them handwritten notes. He wrote at least 100 a week. That was his goal. Can you imagine a CEO of a company writing? I know we think, oh, they don't do anything. Trust me, I've known some CEOs. They do a lot. He was writing 100 handwritten notes where he was getting information from people, finding out and praising people. Or when people were struggling, they weren't doing well. Even they'd made a big mistake in the company. They'd really blown something. Instead of firing them, he'd write them a note and say, hey, it's okay, I understand you figured this out. And the employees started getting these notes. They were so freaked out, they didn't know what to do. One guy got one of it from a manager, looked at it and said, I don't know what kind of propaganda this is, but I'm not buying it. He went to the fish tank in the manager's office and dunked it in there to show it was fake and all the ink started to run. He looked down, he said, this is really from the guy we see on the videos every week. And he said, yep. The manager sent an email to Frank and he sent another note and said, sorry, your last one got ruined. Here's another one. <laughs> now, what do you think that person did with that note? The manager realized that they had put that note in their locker. And everyone else came in and said, what is that? He said, I don't know. I got a letter. It's not real. No, it's real. I put it in the fish tank. It's real. Things started to change. Good things started to happen. He started to go in and have lunches and meet the people. Home Depot went from a struggling company to one of the most powerful companies in the world. Now, why does that matter to us as a church? That upside-down model of leadership, that servant leadership, can change any structure of human relationships. It can change it in your family. It can change it in your marriage. It can change it in your workplace. Your workplace may be terrible right now. I don't know. Your school may have a terrible situation. Maybe there's some tough people you're dealing with in a class. I don't know what it is. Maybe you have a boss who's not like Frank and is not a good person. Whatever it is, if you practice servanthood, mercy, love, encouragement, think of what it takes to encourage people and say, you know what? 
I, don't, I can't, you know, Frank understood, as we all do, I can be the greatest person in an organization. I can be the most important person, but I'm still nothing without Jesus. And if he is at the bottom of the pyramid, I need to be there too. What if it meant serving and loving someone in your family, in your workplace? Maybe you see someone every week and they're just angry. What if we made it about our lives, that we understood that we're like these small children? If we want to be the grace in God's kingdom after him, if Jesus came and humbled himself, so should we. Maybe the heart of servanthood is not saying, hey, you know what, I've earned this, but say, it doesn't matter what I've earned. I'm going to serve somebody. I'm going to write him a note. I'm going to call him on the phone. I'm going to smile at him. I'm going to invite him to eat lunch with me. I'm going to ask him what I can pray for. I'm going to invite them to a small group of church. If they have a church, I'm going to encourage them to go to a church. If they're going to a church that preaches God's word, I want them to go there. What if we pushed this idea of what the kingdom of God really is from our church up into how we treat each other, but all the way up into how we treat total strangers? When you call into customer service, what if you're nice to that person? Have you ever called in and gotten someone on one of those phone calls? Like, I have to call PNC sometimes because even when I travel and I tell them I'm traveling, they turn off my debit card no matter what I do. And I have to call in and be like, hey, they did it again. And they're like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, it's fine. Can you fix it? Sure, sure, I can fix it. And usually at the end of that call, you know what that person says? Thank you so much for understanding me. Now, what are they really saying? Thank you so much for treating me like I'm a human being made with value and worth and dignity. If you want to understand the fundamental trait of the kingdom of God, it's this. No one that we ever meet is more valuable to Jesus Christ than we are. And in fact, if that person doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, at that moment, because we are Jesus' chosen servant, that person should be the most important person in the world to you and me. That, my friends, is what it means to be the greatest servant in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this day, that we would understand that your call to us is not that we would be perfect. Lord, it's not that we would be, God, even in ourselves, uh, aggressively seeking to prove our worth to you. But in all things, that we would rely on you that we would surrender to you our need to prove ourselves, that we would remember that being the greatest in the kingdom of God is to be like Jesus and to give up everything. Lord, that we would quit worrying about getting all the glory and all the praise for ourselves, that we would quit worrying about saying, hey, it's all about us, that we would understand that in our brokenness, we're like a small, helpless child. And when we recognize, Lord Jesus, that you brought us in, that you made us a part of your kingdom, that loving and serving and humbling ourselves as you did to come and 
be obedient to that death on the cross, that we would treat that person in front of us not as someone with which we should compare or compete, but someone that we should serve with all of our might, that they would see the heart of who you are and how we would love and give and be a servant to them. Lord, would that be what we would carry out of this time into Lent, that we would, even as we're going to learn Ash Wednesday, we would take up our cross and follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.